Psalm 110. Uh, We'll be looking at that psalm first. And then Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through uh, 25. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation, rather than the Tyndale. So Psalm 110, the entire psalm. This is a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And then from Hebrews chapter 7, the first 25 verses. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, 
And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and has not changed his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantee or guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand uh, this passage, these passages together. Help us to see the connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. Help us to see how these words uh, apply to us, teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the title of the message this morning is The, the Mission of Christ, A Priestly Calling. It's about Melchizedek. It's about the mission of Christ. Uh, as we see Christ and uh, Melchizedek connected in Psalm 110. Now, the point is that we're looking at the Old Testament and the ways in which the Old Testament actually proclaims Christ. Uh, currently, we're involved in looking at uh, the great promise that God made to David that one of David's uh, descendants would sit upon his throne forever. So we're looking at all the, the, the psalms, not all of them, but the, the principal psalms that actually contain the prophetic teachings of David as a psalmist and as a prophet with respect to the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. And so last week we uh, looked at Psalm 40, uh, verses 6 through 8. Uh, this week we're looking at Psalm 110, uh, specifically verse in the connection that exists there between Jesus and Melchizedek. Of all the Psalms, uh, this one, Psalm 110, is most frequently quoted by the New Testament writers. Uh, Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's quoted frequently. But in the book of Hebrews, where it's also quoted several times, the writer to the Hebrews picks up verse 4. Uh, verse 4 becomes very, very significant. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we see this in chapter 7, but what's interesting is that in the book of Hebrews, already the writer, the author of Hebrews, has made reference to the priesthood of Christ 
and the priesthood of Christ connected to Melchizedek at least five times. But it's only here in chapter 7 that he actually begins to explain the relationship that exists. Uh, Many have looked at chapter 7 and said, this is really an exposition of Psalm 110 verse 4. This chapter in its entirety is an exposition of what God the Holy Spirit revealed through David. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's stated in the Old Testament with no explanation. But here we have the Holy Spirit through the author of the book of Hebrews expounding and enlarging and saying in a definitive manner, what does it mean that Christ is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek? Now, if you think about verse 4 in Psalm 110, you see that there are three things which can be captured in what the Spirit reveals to David. Uh, First of all, that Christ, the Messiah, is a priest. Secondly, that Christ as a priest is a priest forever. But thirdly, that this permanent priesthood of Christ is not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. But when we come to Hebrews chapter 7, we find that the Holy Spirit guides the writer of Hebrews to cover these same three points but in a somewhat different order. And so this morning in our message, we're going to follow the order that we find in Hebrews chapter 7. Before we do so, let's remind ourselves of something that is absolutely fundamental. Learning things in greater depth in the Bible is never for the sake of having a kind of fathead biblically. There are a lot of Christians who have a fat head biblically. They know a whole lot. They can cite many chapters and verse. But the question is, has that which they have known done what the Bible was intended to do? Now, what is the Bible intended to do? Paul says what it was intended to do in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writing to Timothy. You have known from infancy the holy scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation. And then he goes on to describe the nature of scripture, uh, verses 16 and 17. But all of scripture is God-breathed, and therefore it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, And then Paul says to Timothy, who is a man of God, a pastor, so that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But all commentators say it's not just that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, but all believers, by virtue of the word of God, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All the things that they were supposed to do following Jesus faithfully. So when we come to the teachings here, we might learn some things that are new, We might learn some things that are interesting. We might learn some things that are difficult. But in the final analysis, is this word of God going to teach us and correct us and reprove us and train us in righteousness? That requires that we would give our attention to the word of God with a desire from our hearts to pursue 
the kind of life that God desires for us to have as the Word of God renews our minds and hearts. One other thought. In chapter 6, the chapter before, the writer introduces a concept, the concept of an anchor, an anchor of the soul. Now, with respect to ships, the reason why ships have anchors is so that they will not drift with the current or drift with the wind or even worse, drift in a storm. The anchor provides stability. And the image of an anchor is what the writer uses and he connects it with the soul. And what he essentially says in chapter 6 before he comes into chapter 7 is this. The hope we have in Christ and his priestly ministry is the anchor of the soul. What Christ does in his priestly ministry is that which will hold us steady so that we're not blown away by every wind of doctrine. We are not capsized by the storms of life and we don't find ourselves drifting away from that which is our sure foundation, the anchor of the soul, even Jesus Christ in terms of his priestly ministry on our behalf. So if I were to say what the main lesson is out of this passage this morning, I could say it simply like this. You and I can have no other anchor for our souls except that which anchors us into the priestly ministry of Christ. That which will give us the stability that we need is an understanding and dependence and trust in the priestly ministry of Christ. So, looking at chapter 7, the first 25 verses, um, the message can be outlined in three ways. First, a really big point, uh, explaining the relationship between Melchizedek and Christ. That's a really big point. Secondly, a point that's really a bridge point, far more significant to the Jews in in this day, in the New Testament times, than to us. But it has this application to us as well. It's, why must Christ be according to Melchizedek rather than according to the law? Okay? Really a vital point with respect to the Jews. And then, thirdly, the biggest point, the largest point, it's the climax, really, of these first 25 verses. It is the significance of Christ having a priestly ministry that is permanent, that never, ever stops on our behalf. So this first point, this big point, this connection between Melchizedek and Christ. So we have him mentioned twice in the Old Testament, just twice. So what is the connection then that David designed, David is revealed to give between Christ and Melchizedek? What is this relationship? So the author of Hebrews in chapter 7, as I've mentioned before, he's already said five to seven times that Christ is a priest. He is a great high priest. He's even a priest according to the, the order of Melchizedek, but he's never explained it till he comes to this chapter. 
And what he immediately begins to do is he connects Melchizedek to a story in Genesis, Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. And he essentially says that in the story with Melchizedek, which, which comes at the end of a war campaign that Abraham was involved in, he writes, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So uh, this is the first mention of Melchizedek in all of the scriptures. Never mentioned again until Psalm 110. Yet, in the story of Abraham and in the story of Genesis, it's very clear, especially the writer of the Hebrews is going to say this, it's very clear that Melchizedek is one of the most significant figures in all of the Old Testament. Now further, he goes on then in the first three verses to expound who Melchizedek happens to be. He uses these several things that he says to draw the connection, at least implicitly, to Christ. And that's what we have to, be, what we have to remember. The intention is to show the connection between Melchizedek and Christ. So when we look at what the author says about Melchizedek, he wants his readers to think about Christ as well. That's what's important here. First then, verse 1, Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High. Now that designation in Genesis chapter 14 refers to the one and only true God. God God El Elyon, God, God Most High. There's no other God like Him. He is the one living and ever true God. So, He's a priest of that God. But the writer has already told us that Christ is also a priest of that God. So there's that connection right there. And then in verse 2, He translates Melchizedek's name. Melchizedek means King of Righteousness. And, of course, Jesus Christ is the true and final and ultimate king of righteousness. It is his righteousness by which we are saved. But it is also his righteousness by which he governs all of redemptive history and governs all of the universe. Thirdly, he goes on to give an interpretation of the name King of Salem. Because the city Salem, later to become Jerusalem, uh, is, is taken from the word shalom. He's king of shalom, king of peace. Of course, this relates to Christ. Christ is the king of all peace. Uh, we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, that he's the prince of peace. Jesus himself says, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So there's this connection with Christ and his coming into the world to establish objectively peace between God and man. Peace, the very center. Shalom, the very center of our salvation in Christ. Then we come to verse 3. Verse 3 is one of the most challenging verses in all of the Bible if we get off track. Verse 3 says this about Melchizedek. He is without father or mother or genealogy, 
having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, I want to point out that in the history of interpretation, that is, early church, medieval church, time of the Reformation, time of the Puritans, even recent days, there have been some very, very wild speculations about Melchizedek. All sorts of ideas that Melchizedek must have been some superhuman or some supernatural person. Back at the time of the Reformation, when John Calvin is writing his commentary, so this is in the 1540s or thereabout, this is what Calvin has to say because he was extensively knowledgeable about all of these speculations about Melchizedek. Calvin says, it is not worth refuting, quote, the delirious notions of those who dream that Christ himself or the Holy Spirit or an angel appeared at that time. And then Matthew Henry, a couple of centuries later, in the early 1700s, after he mentions the same things that Calvin has mentioned, he goes on to say this, the most general opinion I mean, that he means the, the opinion that's best received by, by biblical, faithful scholars of his day. The most general opinion is that Melchizedek was a Canaanite king who reigned in Salem and kept up <clears throat> religion. What he means by that is a true understanding and a true faith in the Most High God and the worship of the true God, that he was raised to be a type of Christ and was honored by Abraham as such. So if Melchizedek isn't some superhuman kind of being, then what is the writer doing by describing him this way? Well, first, we have to remember, we have to honor the point that Melchizedek is being presented as a type of Christ. That's his function, both in Genesis chapter 14 and in Psalm 110. Secondly, consider the context of the story in Genesis. As we've already said, Melchizedek appears. He's clearly one of the greatest figures in all of the Bible because he's greater than Abraham. He, he gives the blessing to Abraham. Abraham tithes to him. And as the writer's later going to say, surely... Uh, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Surely the superior blesses the one who's lesser. But there's something unique about this in terms of Melchizedek. Incredibly unique with respect to the Levitical priest. Now, all of the major figures that you find in the story of Genesis, uh, up to the time of Abraham, before Abraham, what do we know about them? When they're part of the godly line, they are always identified rather extensively. They're identified by their family trees. They're identified by their genealogies. They're identified by when they were begat. <laughs> and then they're identified by when they die. Uh, those kinds of things are there in the text about uh, all of the great figures that we find in the story up to the time of Abraham. It's there of Adam, it's there of Seth, it's there of Enoch, 
It's there of Noah. It's there of his three sons. All the way, it's there of Abraham's father. It's there of Abraham and the story and so forth. Genealogical identifications, absolutely important, but genealogical identifications are written in terms of fathers primarily, mothers often, uh, length of days, so forth. That's especially true with respect to the priesthood because the priesthood of Levite is based entirely upon a genealogical connection of the family of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi. And the only way you could establish your credential as a priest was actually to show that you were a descendant of Levi. And you served as a priest only as long as you lived. But once you were born, you were destined to that role. And once you started that role around the age of 30, you continued in that office until you physically died. And when you died, that office ceased with you. All of that is significant because there's a contrast here with the priesthood of Melchizedek. There is a silence in Scripture about any of this related to Melchizedek. In other words, the Scriptures do not assign to Melchizedek any of these kinds of credentials with respect to priesthood because his priesthood is of a different order altogether. God designed the story of Melchizedek this way in order to be a pattern for the priesthood of Christ to point to the one and final and ultimate fact about Christ, that his priesthood does not end with his death because, risen from the dead, he lives forever. He has a priesthood connected to his resurrected and indestructible life. So, what is the writer of Hebrews saying then in these first three verses? Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our peace. But most importantly, Christ is our priestly mediator whose ministry will never cease. And that is why the priestly ministry of Christ is the anchor for our souls. Now, the second point is a bridge point. I mentioned already that it, it had in its day a tremendous significance for the Jews of that day. It also has a significance for us, but it was written to, to, to present to them something that they had to deal with because unless they could deal with this, there was no way they could ultimately be saved. And it has to do with why the priesthood of Christ must be according to Melchizedek rather than according to the Levites. And the point is that the Levitical priesthood was never sufficient to grant the Jews salvation. The Levitical priesthood could never confer the salvation which it represented. Now, this is the argument from verses 4 all the way through verse 19. So we're just going to summarize it in a couple of quick points. In verses 4 through 10, the writer says, the priesthood of Melchizedek is so much greater than the priesthood of Levi because Melchizedek blessed Abraham and Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. And it could be said even 
that Melchizedek received tithes from the Levites because they were still in the loins of their ancestor Abraham when Abraham gave tithes. So that's his first point. Melchizedek and his priesthood is far greater than the priesthood of, of, the, of the Levites because Melchizedek blessed and Melchizedek received tithes from Father Abraham. The second argument that he presents is verses 11 through 19. And here he says, The priesthood of Levi never made anyone perfect. That's why the priesthood of the Levites is so inadequate. We're morally broken human beings. We are so far imperfect from the perfection which God first created us. We need a means whereby we can be truly restored to a holy and perfect God when we ourselves are so morally imperfect. Could the law do it? Well, in verse 11, the writer says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? He raises that question as a rhetorical question. The answer is, well, it wasn't perfection. Perfection didn't occur. Therefore, there had to be something else that God would provide. Down to verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, referring to the Levitical law, the laws of Moses. And then he says, for the law made nothing perfect. Now, for the Jews, think about this. Think about how incredibly huge, large this idea was that they were hearing about Christ and the gospel. When Christ appears and the gospel comes, the statement that this Jewish writer is saying to all of the Jews of that day is this. What you have had for the last 1,500 years never made anyone perfect. And now that priesthood that could never make anyone perfect is finished. It's done with. It is superseded. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever met people who've come out of a bad Christianity or a cultic kind of Christianity where there was a huge, huge emphasis upon obeying the law. Being absolutely scrupulous with respect to the law. This is often done in terms of well, we need to keep the Old Testament festivals. We need to keep all of the Old Testament law. We need to do all those things because we need to do what God commanded and God's law never changes. Well, actually, God's law does change in terms of its administration. This law given to the Israelites never made anyone perfect. The law of the priesthood and the sacrifices never made anyone perfect. There was a symbolic nature to it that was perfect. But the reality of the symbolism wasn't conveyed by those symbols. The reality didn't really come just because they followed the sacrifices. It was all speaking to a greater reality. And only that greater reality can save. But for the Jews, who had been habituated to this kind of life, offering the sacrifices, keeping the law scrupulously, how difficult this was to hear that the way they have lived all of their lives, now that they've come to Christ, no longer, no longer has any value or purpose with respect to actually following Christ 
and pleasing God and living under the new covenant. You know, there are uh, Jews today who still have a great respect and belief in their heritage, their history, and who practice not the sacrifices because that's impossible, but who practice trying to keep the law of Moses, the ethical aspects, the moral aspects, as faithfully as they can. They try this very, very hard. What do they think is the answer to their salvation? The answer to their salvation is this. I'm going to follow this. I'm going to follow this law. And although I'm not perfect, surely God will save any of us who does his very, very best to keep the law. And there have been Christians who sadly have been caught up in that same delusion. If we just do our very, very best, surely God will be pleased with us doing our very, very best. Now, the problem is, the writer here says, the law has never made anyone perfect. But perfection is what God requires. And that is why there has to be a change in the priesthood. Because the law has never made anyone perfect. What is actually needed is the perfection that can only come in Christ. And then we come to the biggest point. The biggest point is really the climax of this section found in verse 25. Consequently, he, Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, this is the most important reason why the priesthood of Christ is in accordance with Melchizedek rather than Levi. The teachings in this chapter so far have built to this climax. And verse 25 can be broken down into its three constituent phrases. First, saving to the uttermost. Now, let's stop and let's think about that. Saving to the uttermost. The word uttermost in English we know is a compound word, utter and most. The Greek word that stands behind it is also a compound word. What's interesting is that the root of the Greek word, that's the compound word, is the word perfect. It's the word that means completion. It means done to its fullest extent. And here it has a prefix in front of it that means all or every. That is, it's something that's done in every possible way, uh, in all possibility, to the very extent that it can be done, completed to the very extent that it can be done. So what's interesting here is all through chapter 7 and earlier, the word perfect occurs. The law makes no one perfect. The law makes no one perfect. Jesus Christ himself is perfect. Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest because he's sinless. So we find perfection 
uh, attributed to Christ, we find imperfection attributed to the law, but now we find a kind of perfection with a prefix in front of it that in essence would say this is super perfection associated with the work of Christ. Christ is able to save to the maximal degree of moral completion and finality and perfection. Christ is able to save that way. And it's because of his priestly ministry. The book of Hebrews points out that Jesus died to expiate our sins, to cover the guilt of our sin. He died as a propitiation for the sins of the people. A propitiation is that which satisfies the justice of God and turns away God's wrath. He doesn't simply make salvation possible. He secures salvation. He secures salvation to the uttermost. He secures salvation to the maximal degree that is possible. The second phrase. Those who draw near to God. Now this is an important reminder in our understanding of salvation. What Christ does doesn't go to everyone but it does come infallibly to all those who draw near to Christ. All those who would draw near to God through Christ. Salvation comes to those who draw near and only those who draw near. But we have to ask, how is it that they draw near to God through Christ? Jesus was explicitly clear on this. In John chapter 6, he talked about the grace of God drawing us near to him. John 6, 44. He said to his disciples and others, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus saves completely. Jesus saves fully. Jesus saves with full perfection all of those who draw near to him by the Father drawing them with his sovereign and invincible grace. Finally, third phrase, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now here is the significance of the permanent priesthood of Christ. It has a perpetual purpose, a purpose that never ends. Jesus ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. Some of the sweetest words that Charles Wesley ever wrote in any of his great hymns. It describes that Jesus ever lives above. By virtue of his indestructible life, he is at the Father's right hand not only ruling as king over all of his universe, but he's also ministering as a high priest on our behalf, that advocate with the Father who is always interceding for us. And what does he petition the Father with? Your virtues, your achievements, your good works, the greatness of who you are, 
the fact that you have become everything you wanted to be? No. What Jesus pleads and advocates on behalf of his people at the Father's throne is his own great and glorious work for us. He is able to plead and therefore able to save us to the uttermost because he intercedes on the basis of his final and full and perfect work on our behalf. That and that only is the anchor for your soul. You can't trust your own heart. You can't trust the goodness of your life. You can't trust anything else at all with a perfect trust except Christ and all that he has done for you. All of us need an anchor for our souls because each day there are circumstances that can be like a wind that will drive us away from Christ. There can be afflictions that can cause us to drift. There can be challenges and conflicts that might cause us to doubt God. Keep our eyes fixed on Christ. His priestly work for us. His constant intercession on our behalf. That is the anchor for our souls. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you might be so pleased to do this work in us, to hold fast to Christ, to keep our eyes fixed on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, to run the race with perseverance, that we might be unto the glory of Christ and Christ himself will be lifted up and glorified in all of his ways. In his name, amen.